0: I usually pay very little attention to the business section of the New York Times. A couple of Saturdays ago, however, something caught my eye. I ended up reading how a group of students at my alma mater, the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee, had formed the so-called Socially Conscious Investment Club. Last year, they produced a a detailed 20-page report and initiated student and faculty resolutions requesting that the university start living up to the sustainability plan it had adopted in 2013. This plan promised community-wide consideration of whether the, the investment of the university's $400 million endowment accorded with its values and its commitment to protecting the environment. I won't go into the whole story now. What struck me initially was the contrast between these students and my own generation of Sewanee students back in the late 70s and early 80s. We were, I'm afraid, the me generation in those years which were after the turmoil of the civil rights and anti-war protests of the 1960s and early 70s. It was also after Watergate. For the most part, we weren't actively trying to make the world a better place, but rather we were content to enjoy intellectual and personal pleasures, our own privileged status, and the prospect of successful careers. Like most Episcopalians at the time, we saw no reason to rock the boat too vigorously. After all, women had been admitted to both Sewanee and the priesthood. We had at least a few fellow students who were African American. Weren't we headed in the right direction, we assumed, without activism on our part? More than the students featured in the recent New York Times article, we naturally deferred to authority, thinking that all was more or less right with the world. How we were then, I'm realizing, contrasts not only with some students at Sewanee today, but also with other examples of Christian activism within the Episcopal Church today. Late last year, the Diocese of Alabama raised $78,000 to pay off $8.1 million in medical debt of those whose families had been rendered insolvent by hospital bills they could not pay. Companies sell debt at a a discount, clearly, but $78,000 is no mean amount. Imagine the joyful reactions of roughly 6,500 Alabama households when they received notice around Christmas time that their crippling medical debts had been purchased and forgiven by Alabama Episcopalians. Father Hope tells me that church folks in a suburb of New York City just engaged in a similar act of extravagant generosity. Our own Diocese of Arkansas is taking also an activist turn. We have, I didn't realize this sadly until recently, we have an environmental task force and this body are sponsoring workshops at St. Mark's Church here in Little Rock this Friday afternoon, the 14th, details are in your announcement sheet, about how each of us can do better about caring for our environment, including ways to save energy, not to mention money, in our churches. Those attending the diocesan convention on Saturday this week are encouraged officially to bring their own mugs rather than using disposable cups, and the convention's business will be as paper-free as possible. I'm a little apprehensive about voting online. Uh, I guess I'll have to do it on my phone. I don't know. But anyway, uh, this is a kind of a new day, um, interesting turn of events. These and many other forms of activism to care for and improve our world have nothing directly to do with being politically liberal or conservative. Some, in fact, are obviously conservative in a literal sense. All are examples of something today's scripture readings point toward. Witnessing to God's truth and serving God's purposes by taking care of God's people and God's whole creation, which are so interrelated, so that all may flourish and be at peace, not only the people of today, but people in the distant future. These are among the many ways of proclaiming loud and clear the nearness of God's kingdom, which Jesus himself proclaimed. Traditionally, we Anglicans exhibit the reserve typical of our English antecedents. We prefer understatement and what we regard as tasteful behavior. But today's readings enjoin boldness, even to the point where we might offend some as Jesus did. Shout out, do not hold back, the prophet Isaiah cries. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Highlight, Isaiah says, people's waywardness, their tendency to talk the language of faith and engage in religious practices without doing what God's law requires, such as promoting justice, freeing people from oppression, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, housing the homeless, and ministering to the afflicted. By fulfilling God's will with such righteous deeds, the prophet tells us, our light shall rise in the darkness and our gloom shall be like the noonday. Our Lord may well have had that Isaiah passage in mind when he told his listeners there by the Sea of Galilee, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Don't hide your light under a bushel basket. Don't fail to season the world around you. In both word and deed, proclaim, as Jesus himself did, that God's kingdom is at hand. That a new way is coming to birth in which, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, quoting the prophet Amos, justice would roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. The day's here. The problem with the scribes and the Pharisees Jesus pointed out was that so to speak they were too hunkered down over their prayer books to the point where they used them to escape dealing with the harsh realities of life under the occupation under occupation in the Roman Empire for the scribes and the Pharisees keeping the letter of the law was enough they were not among the blessed whom Jesus described at the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount, right before today's gospel, those who hungered and thirsted for righteousness, who wanted above all for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees were a bit more selfish than that. I know I am. Many of us probably are. Most sadly, the scribes and the Pharisees didn't, and maybe we, do not believe Jesus' proclamation, I mean really believe it, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here. It's upon us. They, we, sometimes lack the extravagant hope that a new way of life was and is now possible through the grace and power of God. Jesus initiated a new day. But the Pharisees and scribes and we might ask whether hope for a just, whole, and peaceful world is unrealistic, pie in the sky, given what we know of human history and current human behavior. Anyway, folks back then and we today might also say religious enthusiasm leading to disruptive action is bad for social stability and for the economy. It involves too much risk. So it is better simply to focus on getting our liturgy just right. This old world can never be changed, we might say. So we, we might say to ourselves, we'll just bide our time limiting our goals and achieving what we think is reasonable, feasible. But this is not the way of Jesus. He was out there. He's the one who proclaimed that the kingdom was at hand. He came to give this old broken creation a new beginning, and we shouldn't act as though that hasn't happened. The English Dominican priest Timothy Radcliffe writes about Christian hope challenging our fatalism. If we want to transform the nation or the world, the best way to do so Radcliffe writes, it's not by stirring up discontent. It's not by demonstrating how reasonable and desirable certain changes are. It's not by coercing people into a new way of life. It's by inspiring people. More by our example than by our words. We inspire change by kindling and fanning what Radcliffe calls an extravagant hope. For example, he asserts that it is not unrealistic to maintain that we can eliminate extreme poverty. As Christians, we should refuse fatalism and try to achieve the end of extreme poverty, he says. As Christians, we have no special economic or political insight into how this may be done, but... We may perform signs that speak our hope. We, may, we can move in a kingdom direction. We can manifest our hope in the power of God by helping heal and unify a broken world. We can do that. We are empowered to do that. Our baptismal promises require us to do that. It requires imagination and boldness. Again, Radcliffe, if people see that Christians are prepared to make slightly crazy gestures instead of always timidly drawing back because they might not work or people might not like them, then they will catch the whiff of our extravagant hope. Our lives need to speak a different outlook than the world has at large. With Jesus' victory over sin and death, it is possible for God's kingdom to be manifested, to be realized all over the place. Often it is more than we think, and we just don't have the eyes to see it yet. But once we dare to hope based on our faith in Christ's victory and to act on that hope in love, wonders will never cease. We just have to be out there and try it with God's help. The prophet Isaiah describes the results of this course, the the way of Jesus, in the magnificent biblical poetry that we heard a moment ago. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach the restorer of streets to live in.